want everyone to keep it a secret that Pastor Brown and his wife Pauletta have been married 40 years on Sunday, okay? So don't, don't, uh, so if they're, they won't be, <laughs> he's laughing, he's laughing. He also wanted me to mention that he's, he's had a couple of 300 games in bowling. Did you know that? No, he didn't want, he didn't want, he had, yeah, that's, I know, that's remarkable. 40, you know, you must have gotten married when you were five. Or Pauletta was five. You were like maybe 12. Let's turn to, oh, yeah, I said Romans 1, I guess. Let's take a few moments. Silent prayer. There, there may be tonight a something out on the tape table for you. I've decided to do the translation of Revelation. It's done, but I'm doing a few chapters at a time. Revelation 1 through 3. There should be enough copies tonight if you want one of those. It's not fancy. It's pretty close to a lot of English translations. I didn't get too avant-garde with it, but during the course of teaching Revelation, I did put together my own translation of it. Wherein it looks like other translations, it's an homage to them because there's, there are some pretty good translations out there. All right, let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to import the mind of your Apostle Paul into our thinking, into our midst, because to import his mind is to import the mind of Christ, for it is his own testimony that he has the mind of Christ and that we are to let this mind be in us. And as Philippians 3.17 says, follow me as I follow Christ. For many are the enemies of the cross of Christ. We are very aware of that today, and we pray that you'll open our eyes to truly understand and come to know the gospel that's all about your son. We ask it in his name. Amen. Of the ten Pauline epistles that are distinct from the pastorals. There are three that are pastoral epistles, as you know, first and second Timothy and Titus, which we're going to kind of leave over for a while. The other 10 out of those 10, eight of those epistles have to do with Paul confronting an interloper or a third party in which an opposition gospel is presented. And I've been delighted to find out the order of events, the order of the epistles, and at first shocked, but now pleasantly amazed that Ephesians was written in about 50, a couple of years before Romans. Colossians was written before Romans. In fact, all of the 10 other than the pastorals, Nine of them were written before Romans. Romans was the last one to be written. By that time, Paul knew what this opposition gospel was about, and he was able to satirize it and to reveal it in an ironic satire. And that's why I believe, and I take my stand on this, I believe that Douglas Campbell's controversial contribution to New Testament studies is a remarkable groundbreaking and truly revealing look at the Apostle Paul in Romans. And that 118 to 32 is indeed a parody of a typical moralizing, self-righteous turn or burn message by Paul's opponent. It's obvious when you go to Galatians that Paul's doing this. He, you, you know there's two Gospels because he starts right off and he, he does a breach of etiquette in terms of epistolary etiquette. There's a, a letter etiquette and he breaches it because he gets right into it. And he says, I'm amazed, I'm shocked, I'm appalled that you are so soon deserting the one who called you by his grace to another Gospel. And he then addresses the third party who 
who accuses Paul of preaching circumcision, and he did. I think Paul did preach circumcision when he first received his call in A.D. 34. He went to Damascus and he began preaching. He didn't just go to Mount Sinai and sit at the base of the mountain and meditate. He started right off preaching the gospel in Damascus. He was let down over a wall in a basket. There are still today people who live in the walls around Damascus. He was let down through kind of an apartment in the wall in a basket to get away from King Aretas. We know that was 36 AD. We know that's an absolute date. That's, there's no lack of clarity about it. We know that he taught in Cilicia and he was in Antioch. We know that he would was a missionary in Lystra and Iconium, and we know that he went to the Galatian churches. And Galatians is an obvious thing. They accused him of preaching circumcision, but then Paul said, if I still preach circumcision, then let me ask you this question. Why am I being persecuted for the cross of Christ? He did start off preaching circumcision like his opponent does, but he did so only for a short time, probably close to two years. And then he understood and he came to a developed understanding that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an unconditionally saving gospel. And I believe if it's unconditional, it has to be universal. But we could ask the question as we're just beginning this series, Better Call Paul, Is Paul a universalist? But I would say, let's not say yes or no. Maybe you know already, but let's pretend we don't know, and let's see. Let's see it come together in the lower blade data. That's what my philosophy is. I want to know something, and I want to know that the data supports it, and I'm speaking of scriptural data, the epistolary data of Paul. And so, again, by Romans, he's able to portray his opposition. He does so in much of Romans 1, 18 to 320. He does so in a different way in Romans 4, where just there's a couple things that catch your attention. First of all, if you read Genesis, you read about Abraham not believing God about Isaac for a while. It's not going to come through his loins. So he and Sarah decide on him having relations with Hagar and that they'll produce the son that way. And he went through a lot of years where he wasn't really believing. And if you read Romans 4, it looks like Paul's writing, well, he never wavered in unbelief. He, never, he was always faithful. He had this supernatural, awesome faith. And he never wavered, never staggered in unbelief, and gave glory to God. That's what they call a hagiography. That's, that's giving a story about somebody where you polish up their reputation and you don't deal with the the failures. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't have a hagiography of its characters. It reveals their flaws, their passions. As James said, these men like Elijah and Moses were men of like passions with us. They had their ups and downs, their failures, their depressions, and their elations. They had their difficulties and their weaknesses. And so there's a lot of things that we have to sort out, but I'm, I'm not going to just go through Romans, although it might appear that I'm doing that tonight. I'm, this is all about Paul, his entire corpus, and this comes from a segue from Revelation in which we said, can we read Paul as an apocalypse? Since we just spent four and a half years in an apocalypse. But by apocalyptic, we mean... Is it a depiction of God in Christ? Is it a revelation, an Athanasian revelation of God in Christ, where Athanasius proved his divinity from eternity past, whereas Arius resisted it? There is an Arian interpretation of Romans, and it marginalizes Christ. It isn't Christocentric. It's anthropocentric. It assumes a rational and ethnic capacity on the part of man. It in, in Paul's gospel has a radical incapacity attributed to man, which demands an unconditional divine saving grace. And so in Romans, you have, again, this opponent, and he is a teacher. 
He is a Jewish Christian. We know that much about him. He is famous. And he is probably famous throughout the Roman Empire. Paul knows that there's a wave of opposition that began a couple years before that. He anticipates this wave hitting Rome. In Philippi, he hit it. If you read Philippians 3, 2 to 4, 3, which is actually Paul copying something from a previous letter that he wrote to Philippi. And he said, it's not grievous for me to repeat this. And he goes from, and he says, and I told you before, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil mutilators, the workers, the canine clergy, we called them, because they don't worship and serve our Lord. They are not the true circumcision. We are. We worship and serve Jesus Christ by the spirit and not the flesh. We have no confidence in the flesh. And that flesh is Adamic ontology. There's nothing good in it. There's nothing that ha- there's no capacity for true ethics in it. There's nothing that can please God in it, as we saw last night in Romans 8, 5 through 8. If you read Romans 8, 5 through 8 and compare it to Romans 1, 18 to 32, you see a, a searing contradiction, an irreconcilable contradiction between what this teacher teaches and what Paul preaches. When you do, when you, when you call on Paul and really get into what he's saying, you find out that Paul isn't as he's been portrayed. He's not a moralizing, stern, and austere figure. He's a man with great affection for his congregations, great affection for his friends. He longs to see them. He's depressed when he doesn't see Titus. He's, he's, he's very open with all of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He has a great regard for women in the body of Christ. He's not a hater of women as Hollywood tries to portray him, and they will more and more and do more and more. He, was, he gave great authority to Junia, who was a woman who, whom he called an apostle. He gave the epistle of Rome, the Romans to Phoebe, and she was the one who probably performed this before the tenement churches in Rome and might have even entertained them by her own rendition of this turn or burn message in 118 to 32. We can picture this, and that's the way things were back then. There was a performance. Revelation was written to be performed, and it was performed, and the characters were on stage, as it were. It It was performed in the churches. It was understood that way. I have a very much more confidence that John, the writer of Revelation, knew and had access to Paul's epistles, especially now with the proof through research that Paul had written all of his epistles up through Romans by 52 A.D. And if we have a late 60s A.D. for Revelation, it's very not possible, but absolutely probable with the highest probability that John had access to Paul's epistles, which is why it was so neat to discover Pauline influence in Revelation, especially toward the end, with a little help from Elaria, if you remember that. But let's go to the exposition of Romans leading up to the key verse. I've been kind of focusing in, homing in, on Romans 1, 16 to 17, because it's the key passage. Paul lays out his point, his thesis for his gospel. And that is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And then he adds a little jab at this other teacher to the Jew first, and also to the pagan, ethne, heathen, the Greek. The Greek is also perceived by the Jews to be a heathen. And then he says, for therein is the righteousness of God being unveiled from faith to faith. Better, from faithfulness to faithfulness. For the righteous one, that's Jesus Christ himself, shall live, that's by resurrection, by his faithfulness. Because of his faithful obedience to the death of the cross, the righteous one lives. And as Romans 4.25 says, when the righteous one lives, He's raised from the dead for our justification. Justification, here's the important, and I'm going to hit this. This is more important than exposition right now. I showed you this before. Dikaiosune. A lot of people who do 
Romans do it on the basis of this word. It's usually translated as righteousness. Dikaiosune. Justification, on the other hand, is dikaio. So it's D-I-K-A-I-O-O. Dikaio is usually translated to justify because righteousness, dikaiosune, is often understood as being justice. And so God is perceived as a God of retribution, a God of retributive justice. And you get to avoid that retributive justice of an angry God by a substitute, Jesus standing in to protect mankind from this God as if he's got to do that. Now, that's absurd, but that's what ultimately this other gospel teaches. Jesus Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So who is he protecting us from then? If the father is altogether like Jesus Christ. He is the one who, he, he is a God of love. His primary attribute is not justice, but love. In fact, love covers all the other and envelops all the other attributes, including omnipotence, including dikaiosune. So dikaiosune, as we've learned from Psalm 98, and a lot of this is summarizing, but it's also coming together in my mind even as I'm speaking about it. Dikaiosune, the righteousness of God that's revealed, or apocalypto, There's our word apocalypse, answering our question right off the bat. Revealed, unveiled from in the gospel, from the gospel. Dikaiosune is an allusion to Psalm 98 or Psalm 97 in the Septuagint in which the righteousness there, this dikaiosune, is defined as the act of a king in the rescuing of his people. It's a right thing for a king to do. It's so righteousness doesn't really have to do with justice, but a saving act of a king toward his people. Now, when you're talking about the righteousness of God, you're talking about the righteous act of God, the king, in his human representative, the Lord and his anointed, as Psalm 2 says. It's an act of, it's a saving act of God in Christ. It's an unconditional saving act of God in Christ. Therefore, if Dikaiosune is finds its definition from Psalm 98 as the saving act of a king toward his people, then Dikaiao has to mean something other than the imputation of a legal or forensic righteousness to those who are saved. Or to people who need salvation. Dikaiao then has to be translated not as to justify in a legal or what we might call forensic or juridical sense, which is the way I used to teach this now, because like Paul, I've developed on some things, if you haven't noticed. Now, dikaiao then doesn't mean justify, but to be delivered. It means to be graciously delivered because the act of the righteous king is an act of rescue or deliverance. And so when you get to dikaiao for justify, you're talking about a deliverance of God, which is the title of Campbell's book, incidentally. And I don't know if I'm representing what he would teach about it by saying these things tonight. This is my own take on it. And so in Romans 4.25, when it says that Jesus Christ was delivered over, handed over, or delivered up for our sins, but raised for our justification, dikaiosis, then dikaio means he was raised from the dead for our deliverance, our unconditional salvation. So we attribute the saving act of God, not only to the death of Christ, but to his resurrection. His resurrection is a saving act. And we have been retrospectively participants of Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension. You can read this in Paul's Colossians and in Ephesians, which were both written in 50. They were written before Romans. They were even written before 1st and 2nd Corinthians. They were written before Galatians. 
and Philippians. We'll get the order to you pretty closely. If you if you've bought Framing Paul and you're frustrated and it's a very scholarly book, go to the last page. It's all there. It's worth buying the book just to get the there's a little thing section this big tells you when the epistles are written underneath the history of Paul with absolute dates that are really you can't argue about. So if Dikaiosune is not justice in making God a God of retributive justice, but it's the saving act of the king or the saving act of God in Christ. Second Corinthians says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Then dikaio doesn't mean a legal justification. It is not a legal imputation of righteousness to a sinner who believes This is the biggest challenge. Paul's gospel does not teach, ultimately, that people are justified by faith, by their faith. But he teaches that people are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He's the faithful one. He's the righteous one. He's the one, and there are many metonymies for the death of Christ on the cross, which is the Christ event. The Christ event includes his faithful obedience to the death of the cross, his burial, and on the third day, his resurrection, and then his ascension and enthronement. All that is the Christ event. I portray it in my notes this way. The cross, which is his death, the resurrection, and enthronement. And this is the Christ event. There are certain words that are what we call a metonymy, a figure of speech called metonymy. Now, Colonel Thame got in trouble in his early ministry by calling the blood of Christ a metonymy. And the fundamentalists got all in a tizzy over that because he said the blood of Christ, wherever it's used in the scripture, is a metonymy. It's a, it is a picture of this whole Christ event. It's a figure of speech for this whole Christ event. And the case is made, I think, that that's the case. Because, yes, if you say that the blood of Christ, his literal liquid running through his veins, is the saving of mankind or the saving of the sinner, then you're really denying or at least downplaying or marginalizing the rest of Jesus. What about his flesh? What about his mind? What about his thinking? So there's metonymies. The blood of Christ is one. The faithfulness of Christ is another. That means his faithful obedience to the extent of death by the cross. The law came through Moses, says John 1. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Means God made a covenant with man, not a contract. God made a covenant with man, and Jesus Christ is the mediator that fulfills the covenant on the human side. It's his faithfulness that fulfills the covenant. And so there are metonymies. There's faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ. Pistis Christu is a metonymy that captures this whole event. His obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, followed by his resurrection, his ascension, and his present session, his enthronement right now, is that's where we see him In Revelation, we see a lamb as he had been slaughtered. We see him ascend the steps and take the scroll from the Father. We see him sit down. We see him as the lamp of the new universe by the time Revelation is over. We don't see a temple in the New Jerusalem. We see God himself and the lamb as the temple. This is very clear. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ and his universal saving significance. My question Is all of Paul about the same thing? Is it apocalyptic? Is it a presentation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving and unconditionally saving significance? In other words, is the gospel all about Jesus? Is it all about God's son? Or is Jesus marginalized and rendered somewhat significant, insignificant compared to our performance as people of faith. 
The patience of Christ is also, the patience of the Lord is another metonymy for his endurance of the cross. There's many things that refer to that. And so we will see these things unfold when we get to Romans 3, 21 to 24. So what you have so far is in a general outline of Romans then, just to give you a hint, instead of just going verse by verse, you have 1, 1 to 17, in which Paul establishes his gospel. He makes some comments. He pulls another breach of epistolary etiquette in 2 to 4 because he sees it very important to introduce the resurrection of the Son of God in there. Paul is an extreme Trinitarian. He is a... He is a he understands worshipfully the triune God. He gives homage to the Father, to the Son, to the Spirit. He is profoundly Trinitarian as a theologian. This is the key verse right here. The righteous one is Christ. He lives because his faithfulness, his faithfulness was rewarded by resurrection. Jesus Christ's faithfulness is the way we're justified. The righteous one, that's Jesus Christ, According to 1 Peter 3.18, according to 1 John 2.1, the righteous one, he will live, that's the prediction of his resurrection in Habakkuk 2.4, by his faithfulness. His faithfulness to the death of the cross results in his resurrection, which means that when he lives, we all live. In Christ, all will be made alive. In Adam, all die. And Paul understood this. And in Galatians 2.20, in one of the most profound verses in all of Pauline corpus, I've been crucified with Christ. He understood that his participation with Christ is retrospective, that it goes all the way back to the cross. He understands that he was buried with Christ in Colossians 2.12. He understands we were risen together with him in 3.1. And he makes that a very good point in Romans 4.25 to 26. Generally speaking, I'm not getting to every single thing. We have 2 1, or rather 118 to 32 is the teacher. We'll just put him as the teacher. And that's his turn or burn message. Paul in 2 1, as I taught a couple Sundays ago, Paul says, But then you are without excuse. You're telling me that these pagans are without excuse. Because they're supposed to take a test and look up into the stars and, and recognize that God has two attributes, eternity and omnipotence. And if they don't pass that test, God hands them over to all kinds of egregious, shocking, immoral sins. But Paul chimes in in 2.1 and says, but then you are without excuse. You who pass judgment on others, you condemn yourself in doing that. And then he goes into 2.2 two and he says, in fact, you say, and then he quotes this guy until he comes up with 2.6 to 10. Well, this, according to this other gospel, not Paul, those who do good and persist in doing good have an experience in the eschatological final judgment of glory and honor and life. They will receive eternal life after their, and I always read that and said, what's Paul saying by saying that? And modern readers have to say, well, he's preparing us. It's the Romans road. He's getting us to acknowledge that we're sinners so that God can save you. You don't acknowledge that you're a sinner before God saves you. He saves you, and then you acknowledge about what a sinner you've been. From inside Christ, you see everything backwards. You see everything in front of you. You, see, you look back and say, wow, I was saved from some stuff. Then you look up into the sky and say, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth declares his handiwork. So you get, and then Paul, then Paul goes all the way to 2.16. And he says, well, there's going to be a day in which God will judge the thoughts and intents of the heart, which is true. But then Paul says, but according to my gospel, in a little bit of a parenthesis, it is kata Yesu Christu. We are going to be judged according to Jesus Christ. In other words, he's going to be our stand-in. He obviously took the judgment that we're fearing in the future. The judgment that we fear for the future has already happened when we were crucified with Christ. And we were crucified with Christ. So he goes much through Romans 2. And Paul enters in a little bit all the way through 2, 
29, and then all the way to 310. And then Paul, Paul begins to give a catena of verses in 310 to 19. And by the time he gets to 19, the whole world's mouth is shut, which means this teacher's mouth is shut. And then Paul goes into 321 to 26. This anticipates the unchained gospel. This is just, I'm giving you sort of an outline as I recall it. 3, 21 to 26. I intuitively, I don't know if you ever recall me teaching on that. I sort of had an intuition that this was a profoundly important passage in Romans, that it was foundational, that it was fundamental. And I, it was proven to me, in fact, by reading that 936-page book. I didn't read the footnotes. There's 350 other pages of Campbell. That that's the case. This is Paul where he says, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been revealed and it is upon all those of faith who participate in the faithfulness of Christ, which ultimately has to be everybody. And then he goes on throughout. So that's Paul. What this does is it anticipates. It anticipates. Now, I'm going to do another thing here. I'm giving a little bibliography for those of you that do read. I wonder, there's, there's about a 20% group of you that does read almost everything that we recommend. But there's a book called Beyond the New and the Old and New Perspectives. And it's edited by Chris Tilling. And I think it's like page 13 to 21, a theologian, a third-generation Scottish theologian named Alan Torrance, who I believe is still connected to St. Andrew's College in Scotland, wrote the best theological take on Campbell's book that there is. And you can get the understanding pretty generally from his sympathetic critique in that book. Beyond the Old and New Perspectives, I think it's Erdman's, and I know it's edited by Chris Tilling. He's another good scholar to find. He's another Chris... Christologist that's fantastic, or Christologian, you might call him. And so Romans 3.26 anticipates what I call the unchained gospel, which starts in Romans, I would say really 4.25, maybe 4.24, and it goes through 8.39. So you're dealing with Romans 3.21 to 26, such a pure Pauline passage anticipates Romans 4.25, or really what's generally can be considered Romans 5, 8, or 5 through 8. That's the gospel that's unchained. That's an unchained gospel. It kind of looks a lot like Ephesians. Ephesians is the most important epistle that Paul wrote because he wrote that without necessarily dealing with, second, with the third-party interlopers, although he warns about them in 4.14 about those there. They're like dice players that cunningly wait for you and lie in wait to deceive. But Ephesians, as we've been teaching, it starts off by saying God in his love has predestined in you in his love to be holy and blameless before him in love. And he goes on into 1, 9, and 10 and explains what Pastor Craig has done such a good job with, the great intention, the determination to summarize everything in Christ. See, he's not dealing there with a false teacher he's just giving you his whole gospel which is the summarization of everything in christ and it's god's determination and you're the first fruits of it and paul said and you're the first to hope in christ and so you've been sealed with the spirit and he he goes into the gentiles and jews being one and he unfolds the mystery so the reason that ephesians is more important than romans in this in one sense is it's most foundational of paul's unchained gospel and that key verse of salvation in ephesians 2 8 i think has to bring us in the understanding of what the faithfulness of the righteous one is by grace have you been saved that's an unconditional salvation through faith or is it through faithfulness of the righteous one i think it's through the faithfulness of the righteous one for by grace you have been saved and if it's through your faith then it takes something away from grace but if it's through the faithfulness of the mediator of this covenant then the grace remains pure all the way through 
And it's the gift of God. And not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that includes, in my my take on this, that includes your work of faith, your act of faith as a work by which you are justified. That includes that, that excludes that too. And so Ephesians, when everyone used to assume that because Ephesians is later in the chronology of the New Testament texts, that it must have been written in that order. And it wasn't written in that order. First and Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians were written in the same year, probably early 41, right after 40. And they were written one right after another from Athens. Romans was written from the home of a man who put up Paul in Corinth. It wasn't written from prison, although Colossians was. And other epistles were, Philemon. But Paul writes from a home, according to 1 Corinthians 1.14, lower blade data, and 1 Corinthians 16.23, and other data, we know that this was at a home of a man named Gaius, G-A-I-U-S. Paul wrote Romans from there in 52 A.D., C.E. as it's called. And so we have this unchained gospel, which begins again with Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith is how it's translated. But should that be faith, meaning our faith, or should that be faithfulness? If we look at what Paul did in his key verse in 117, we know that the gospel reveals the saving act of God in Christ from faithfulness to faithfulness. The faithfulness of Christ to a shared participation, a gifted participation of God's people in faithfulness. And don't get me wrong, faithfulness is required of us. It's an obligation of the covenant. It is not a means of appropriation of the salvation. It is an obligation of faithfulness afterwards, but God does this by his spirit. It is God in you both willing and working who promotes this faithfulness. It's God in you. So I would say that Romans 5.1 would have to say, therefore, being justified by the faithfulness of Christ, which he just expressed as a metonymy. He was given over for our sins and raised up for our what? Our justification, which is what? Our deliverance by the God who enacted our salvation in Christ unconditionally. Therefore, being justified by his faithfulness, we have peace with God. Peace is the hallmark of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is righteousness, which is a, the saving act of God in Christ, joy in the recipients of it, and peace, which is messianic peace in our midst and in our souls and in our hearts. And it goes on, of course, to the no condemnation of Romans 8.1, to the no possibility of separation, to the eschatological assurance of Romans 8. And it also deals throughout with the ethical efficacy of grace rather than a legalistic life lived afterwards. And so Romans 9 through 11 is not a parenthesis. It deals with the all-important question of the unbelief of Israel after the flesh and how God's going to deal with that. And he deals with it by imprisoning both the pagans and the Jews under disobedience that he might have mercy upon all in Romans 11.32. So Paul flies into a doxology. Then he gets into the practicality of Romans 12.1. Therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Stop being conformed to this world, including conformity to the justification theorists and their wrong reading of Romans. And this teacher's viewpoint and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformative is this gospel. Liberational is this gospel. It liberates, it transforms, it grants ethical efficacy so that Christians aren't just saying, I'm saved by grace, I got eternal security, once saved, always saved, but I don't have a Christian life afterwards. And so I can excuse all kinds of idiotic and stupid, obnoxious and immoral behavior on the basis of eternal security. That's what you get when you 
talk about it as an imputation. What we are talking about is a salvation that's complete with an ethical efficacy in the Holy Spirit, a participation in Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's transformative. And so you get a few more snippets in Romans 14 with Paul arguing back and forth with his teacher, but he's already knocked him out, knocked him down and dragged him out. It's a knockdown drag out fight. Now, if, you, if you're wondering what I've been doing since I got back from Florida, I'm, f- I'm getting, and Mike understands this metaphor, getting my sea legs. This is a brand new thing for me, too. It's like being a landlubber. Then you get on a ship, and the ship is moving, and you've got you to you learn how to walk again on a moving ship. That's getting your sea legs. I understand better by going rabbit hunting in 50 below Zero weather at the top of the Kelly stand. When I was a teenager, I learned how to walk with snowshoes because the snow was three and a half feet deep and you can't walk in it. So we had those snowshoes, you know, the ones that used to be shaped like this and they were strapped together and all that stuff. And you know, today, if you buy one in L.L. Bean, it's $329. They cost us about 10 back then. But you learned how to walk. At first, you're like... And that's what I was doing when I first saw this. But now I'm getting my sea legs. I'm able to move with a moving viewpoint. We're moving. We're on the move. We're moving and we're going beyond. And you have to learn how to walk again under this new viewpoint, this new disclosure. So, and it's like walking with snowshoes. If you learn how to walk with snowshoes, it becomes a great pleasure. You can walk for miles and miles and miles on the top of three or three and a half feet of snow. And you have to, back then when we used to hunt snowshoe rabbits, you had to keep walking because if you stopped, you would die. It was 50 degrees below zero wind chill factor constantly on top of that mountain. That's that's an old memory, but it's a metaphor. See, I'm speaking metaphorically. I'm learning to walk with snowshoes. I'm learning, I'm getting my sea legs. I'm getting to be able to walk around on a moving ship. I'm getting to move in this new atmosphere it's a moving viewpoint those of you that have been here for 38 years with me and have been traveling together with me understand what that means we've always been on the move and so our changes haven't been just oh i i once believed that but i yeah it's there have been changes but it's because of a development and a progress so Let's look at Romans 1.1. 1, 1. I'll close with this. We've got some time to get right into the, just in case you forgot, you think I forgot to go verse by verse on things. I didn't. My translation, and I'm taking the responsibility to do a translation of Romans 1. Paul, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, called apostle. There's our series title, Better Call Paul. Because the one who said better call Paul wasn't us. It wasn't the Corinthians. It wasn't the Galatians in trouble. It was the triune God saying, we better call Paul. James doesn't seem to have it together. Peter seems to be confused. The apostles are kind of still a little bit jittery about this. The churches are getting a little bit bizarre. It looks like there's a trajectory that we're going to have to correct, so we better call Paul. Let's call the worst persecutor of the church and make him the apostle of the church age to illustrate unconditional grace. Better call Paul. Called apostle. So here's the worst persecutor that ever lived. His persecution is directed personally toward Jesus himself. Because Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And he called him apostle. So what happened between Paul being the worst persecutor of the church, directly hating and persecuting Jesus Christ, murderous in his intent to destroy the church, and what happened between then and Paul being an apostle? What intervened? Can you tell me anything intervened but the unconditional grace of God? No, Paul went through that whole thing that the teacher teaches about. He realized he couldn't keep the law, did he? Then why did he write in Philippians that he kept it perfectly? And then he got to despair, and he realized, well, I can. I, the, God lowered the bar, so now I just have to believe. And when I believe, I'll be justified. Paul didn't go through all that on the road to Damascus. He was just shifted from sin into Christ, from an Adamic ontology into Christic 
ontology and was transferred. Paul called apostle set apart to the gospel of God. This is the good news announced by God, which he previously announced through his prophets in the sacred scriptures. You say, yes, but did did they know it? No, they didn't. This is the secret that was kept silent until now when Jesus Christ fulfilled all those prophecies. But the gospel was previously announced through his prophets. We studied them a lot in Revelation in the sacred scriptures about his son. Peri, P-E-R-I, means all about his son. The gospel, in what I'm saying from the very get-go here, is, is the gospel all about his son? If it is, then his son is being apocalyptically presented in all of the Pauline corpus in his universally and unconditionally saving significance toward humankind. That's Paul's gospel. And it's unchained. we got to unchain it. And that's the biggest thing going on in history. is isn't it a presidential election. The biggest thing going on in human history right now is the recovery of the unchained gospel of God about his son, which has remained shackled within Christendom more than anywhere else. And it's the reason why the young people of this generation and the past generations have forsaken the gospel because there hasn't been an unchaining of it. And so God doesn't hold them accountable as much as you think for that. But he holds those who preach the gospel accountable. His son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now David's line was royal. Jesus is a king. So Paul calling himself a slave is like saying that he's sort of like Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king. He's right there next to the throne of the king And being a slave means I'll do whatever you ask me to do. It doesn't matter if it's small or large, if it's going to Ananias' house or if it's going in a a sea voyage to to a mission field, I'll do whatever you want. He's universally willing, and that's why he calls himself a slave. It's an honorable position. It's the highest position when you're related to the king. And so because we have such an infinitely honorable master, slavery is to him an always honorable profession. He is of the royal line of David according to the flesh, and he's been designated as the son of God. That means the divine son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead, by the spirit of sanctification through whom we received grace and apostleship. Paul wrote most of his epistles co-authored with other people like Paul, uh, Timothy rather, Silvanus, and others, Tychicus and Titus and others we're going to see in Colossians. And then he says, to bring about the faithful obedience in all the nations. In other words, by his gospel, there is going to be a participation in the Messiah's faithfulness among all the nations on behalf of his name, including you who also belong to Jesus Christ by calling. You don't belong to Jesus Christ by something you did. You belong to Jesus Christ by a calling that issued from God. The reformers used to call it an effectual calling, means it was a calling that got you. The decision for your salvation was made by Jesus Christ. Just as the decision for your condemnation was made by the first Adam, the decision for your salvation was made by the second Adam, which is why by the disobedience of one, the many were rendered sinners. By the obedience of another, the the Many, which is the all in Romans 5.18, received life-giving justification. Because justification does not mean legal imputation. Otherwise, why would Paul call it the justification of life? 
It's not the justification of legality. It's a justification that consists of a life, a resurrection life that delivers you from sin into Christ. It's an apocalyptic event. There's not a Roman's road that gets you to admit you're a sinner and do all the other things that the four spiritual laws and other things say to do. It simply transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And then looking back retrospectively, you see what you've been saved from. It's not a plight then solution in Romans. It's an unchained gospel where you see only in Christ, with the mind of Christ, can you think rightly about where you came from. And that's what's the whole perspective change. That's where I'm getting, getting my sea legs in this moving viewpoint. So in closing, to belong to Jesus Christ by calling is to have been foreknown by God, Romans 8.30, and called with an effectual calling that doesn't really have anything to do with your will. Now, that's a shocker because of a thing called American Pelagianism. The American church is rooted almost since the 1700s in a kind of cooperative gospel where it's me cooperating with God for my salvation, even if it's by my faith. Something about getting in, something about staying in has to do with me. That's deep-rooted. That's very deep-rooted. And it's very American also. Very American. And you can be a proud American if you want and still realize that American Pelagianism exists in the church in America. I'm not being condemning of the church. I'm saying, hey, let's get rescued out of this mess. Let's give the gospel to the generations that follow that's unchained by the petty moralizing of self-righteous preachers and theologians and televangelists. So, when you were called with an effectual calling by which you were transformed or transferred from sin into Christ, from the tyranny of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son or the Son of God's love, this occurred in an apocalyptic moment for you, in an event of God's grace. By grace, you were delivered, Titus 3, 7. By grace, you were saved. Now, your faith, you do have faith. You're here tonight because you have faith. But faith is not the means for securing salvation, but it's a gift of assuredness of your salvation. If you start thinking it through, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? You say yes. You, do you believe that God raised him from the dead? You say yes. Then you don't have to ever worry about your status ever again. You're in Christ. But that faith was granted to you. And the fact that you have it shows that you're in. And there's no way out. Now, you can have some trouble and you can have be chastened by God because he chastens us as a parent. He doesn't thump us like a devilish God of wrath. He loves us. By grace, you were delivered, says Titus 3.7. By grace, you were saved through the faithfulness of Jesus, says Ephesians 2.8. And not as a reward for works in accordance with law or any other ethical principle, or by meeting any condition whatsoever. In other words, unconditional. There's the rub. There's the, there is the place where people get really upset. Because that kicks out the final prop. That kicks out the final vestige of my own righteousness. That makes Jesus Christ and him crucified all that's worth talking about. In another place, 1 Corinthians 3.23, Paul states emphatically, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. That's 1 Corinthians 3.23. And again, in another epistle that Paul wrote before Romans, he said, you died and your lives are hid with Christ in God. And here's some eschatological assurance for you. 
You've heard of e-insurance. I'm giving you e-assurance. Eschatological assurance. When Christ appears, you will appear with him. All glorious. 3-4. Of Colossians. This is called eschatological assurance. This is called e-assurance for note takers. It's a key factor in Paul's gospel. He speaks of a judgment of the thoughts and motives of men's hearts in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, but it's a judgment by Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, to whom all judgment has been committed by the Father. Who judges you? The one who died for you and who rose for your deliverance. Not some wrathful God, not some God of retributive justice, but by a God revealed in Jesus Christ, a God of infinite, limitless benevolence, a God who can be described in one word as love, not justice, not retributive justice. So our judge is not full of fury and wrath. He's full of grace and truth. He's the mediator of an unconditional covenant made by God with all flesh, with all mankind. The one who gave his life as a ransom for all is the one by whom the world of humankind is to be judged or has been judged better. According to Paul's gospel through Jesus Christ. And as I said before, and I'll close with this, the latest research discloses the very high probability that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, which I just quoted to you, as well as 2 Corinthians before he wrote Romans in 52 AD from the home of Gaius in Corinth. He wrote Thessalonians on the occasion of an event in which the Caesar, whose also name was Gaius, announced that he was going to put an image of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. And this occasioned a forged letter or some kind of charismatic prophecy as if it was from Paul that the day of the Lord had already come and they were left behind. And so Paul wrote first Second Thessalonians to argue that and to answer that. But he also wrote First Thessalonians. He wrote both of them from Athens on right after this event happened. And in Second Thessalonians, he had to assure the Thessalonians there that the Lord didn't come and remove everybody and leave them behind. That was, a, that was some eschatological anxiety. Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians early in 40, late 40 or early 41. Then he didn't write another epistle till 50 when he got to do a whole flurry of epistles because of the wave of false teaching that had some super apostles connected with it, as they were called, and some false teachers. And so in 1st Corinthians, Paul wrote, God is faithful in one nine, who has called you into participation with his son, koinonia, with his son, Messiah, Jesus. God is faithful. It is through him that you were called into koinonia, participation with his son, Messiah, Jesus our Lord. Here we get the first hints that faith carries the meaning of faithfulness and that the faith faithfulness is God's and Christ's. Our privilege by calling is to participate in that faithfulness. Our faith then is a gifted participation with the faithfulness of Messiah, which continues even now after his faithfulness unto death. As Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live in the life that I now live. I live by the obviously ongoing faithfulness of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Amen. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. It's been a joy to just converse about these things, to teach about these things, proclaim them. And we get the sense that there's not a teacher teaching a congregation, but a whole team of people coming to discover the unchained gospel together in this place tonight. And we thank you that that's the way we ought to think. May we go from here tonight overwhelmingly grateful to be those who belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to him. We died and our lives are now hid with him. May this be incentive to put off that irredeemable Adamic ontology that we try to dress up, pump up, primp up, and make behave. Instead, we put that whole thing off, that old man off, and put on the new, who has been renewed by an act of saving grace. Thank you for this in Christ's name. 